You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2 if you haven't already done so. I'm Jeremy, by the way. Um, The Lord called uh, my family and I here to Nashville 12 years ago next month to start this church. And by God's grace, it's still a church and we're still here. Um, It is a tremendous uh, joy and honor to be one of the pastors here. But we're jumping into week nine in our time through the gospel of Mark, a series that we've entitled Seeing, Believing, and Following the Messiah of Jesus. Like our hope is that, and Mark's hope as he wrote this, to the Romans, is that we would all see, believe, and follow Jesus, and that we would hear the things of God and believe that they're for us too. He wrote it for the Gentiles, the Romans, to hear Jesus, to hear the things of Jesus, and know that it's for them too, and not only for the Jews. Um, So I believe nothing will make Mark happier, or myself, or even Jesus, than we would see, believe, and follow the risen Christ. So for some context, coming into chapter 2 and verse 18, where we're talking about fasting, Jesus comes onto the scene. He calls disciples. He calls at least four, Peter and Andrew, brothers, James and John, brothers. And then last week we saw where he called a fellow named Levi, who was a tax collector. And um, he said, as he called Levi, that he came not to call the righteous, self-righteous, if you will, but sinners. And then I believe the gospel of Matthew adds, I came not to call sinners or righteous, but sinners to repentance. Um, So Jesus heals people. His reputation spreads really quick. News gets around about Jesus healing people, lepers, demon possessed, uh, people who can't walk. Like they're totally different and he's forgiving sins. He's, He's acting as if he's God and has that type of authority. And so word spreads quick around the Middle East and, uh, his reputation spreads far and quickly. Um, and that's where we come to our text this morning. And be reminded as we come to scripture this morning that, that these, these words from Mark, this is the word of God. And we're not to hold it as a tool in our hands as much as the objective light and truth over us. It is our authority. It is our teacher, Right? We take it and we live in light of it. Let's be very slow to question these things. May we be like Job and say, little did I know how magnificent and glorious you are. I did not know what I was saying. I'm going to keep my mouth closed. You can speak. I'm not going to anymore. This is what it means to revere scripture as our final authority. And so let's come as humble students blown away that God has spoken. Can you believe it? God Almighty has spoken to us and it has been carefully handed down to us throughout history. And we've got it before us. It's all over this room. It's on your phones. Be blown away that we get to hear from God, that he has spoken to us, that he would allow us to listen and learn together today from what he's spoken. So with this, let's go to Mark chapter two and verse 18. Now, John's disciples, this is speaking of John the Baptist, remember the forerunner promoter of Jesus who baptized him and who said, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world, right? He was the one that identified Jesus as the Messiah, right? John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came to him, 
People came to Jesus and said, why do John's disciples fast? And why do the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples, they don't fast. Why is this? Now, these people here don't appear to be the disciples of John or the disciples of the Pharisees. Perhaps they were. We don't really know. I believe they were just those from the crowd who've been following Jesus around. But perhaps they were some of, of both. But they were listening. They were watching. They were experiencing Jesus heal and teach. And they noticed this distinct difference that they don't fast as these others fast. And here they ask Jesus what appears to be a sincere question, not like a setup like we see so many particularly from the Pharisees, trying to set Jesus up. Well, here it's just like, why? Like, or, or why not? Like John's disciples fast, the Pharisees fast, and their disciples, but Jesus' disciples, apparently they're not fasting, at least not in the same way as what, you know, the norm is during this time. Well, first, like what's fasting? Fasting is, is one of the spiritual disciplines of the Christian. There are many disciplines that, that we can and should pursue as Christians, right? To kind of like blaze uh, a trail towards uh, greater godliness and holiness in our pursuit of Jesus, as we say here, learning to better fight the drift. These disciplines, um, it causes our fight the drift muscles to increase. And it, there's a number of them, but like meditation and prayer, of course, fasting, journaling, uh, stewardship and giving of your time and your money, evangelism, random acts of kindness, uh, confession is, is a spiritual discipline, finding time for solitude and silence, uh, finding opportunities to, to have a, um, a spirit of gratitude and speak of things that you're thankful for and learn to celebrate. Celebration is a spiritual discipline um, and, and on. So there's, there's several of these and we pursue these disciplines in order to better fight the drift. And these disciplines, they help strengthen your fight and your sanctification. They help put some grit in your godliness and some fire behind your pursuit of holiness. And practicing spiritual disciplines in the life of the believer as we learn to fight the drift helps us in a lot of ways, uh, as fasting in particular helps us understand a little bit more and learn delayed gratification. Heaven help us. We are set against that in our culture. Uh, but, but practicing disciplines uh, helps us receive insight. It helps us better hear and discern what it is that we're to do according to God's word. So it helps us make better decisions. It helps us pull away at times and let the external events around us sort of be a little bit uh, less loud, and it causes our ears and affections to grow for God and, and listen to him. Spiritual disciplines can help us develop a moral courage within. Um, certain disciplines help us detach from distractions, where we feel peace, where we feel grounded and settled. Uh, it gives us opportunities to not uh, pursue selfishness, but to intentionally pursue selflessness, where we begin to learn practical wisdom and apply it. Uh, spiritual disciplines help us endure hardships with joy uh, and just create better habits where we learn better discipline to help conquer the worst parts of who we are, right? All these are spiritual disciplines and the, the effects of spiritual discipline in our life. But what about fasting in particular? Uh, author John Piper in his book, A Hunger for God, he says this. I commend that book to you, by the way, if you're interested in fasting. Christian fasting at its root is the hunger for a homesickness for God. Christian fasting is not only the spontaneous effect of superior satisfaction in God, 
but it's also a chosen weapon against every force in the world that would take that satisfaction away. So fasting is, in my opinion, simply withholding something. It's saying no to something that you've got every right to otherwise in order to bring about a greater focus towards the cross and and come into heart alignment with God and his spirit. Fasting isn't trying to show God you're serious. Um, It's to show yourself that you're desperate, that you're distracted. And fasting helps fight that distraction. Fasting doesn't give you a greater amount of God's attention, but fasting does give God a greater amount of your attention. And I used to think of prayer like raising your hand, like a, like a student in a classroom, and fasting is like this, like really trying to get God's attention. You know, it's like if you, if you want God to listen, you can do this. If you really want to make sure he's listening, you fast. But since I've become a Christian, I don't think of it that way. And the more I read scripture and understand scripture, it's a proven fact that God is near his people. And he hears. He hears you when you cry, when you moan, when you say nothing, he hears you. When you curse, when you fast, when you sing. And all that is a form of prayer. And he's near you. He hears you. But fasting, like from food or technology, or those who enjoy fasting from Facebook and social media, you don't have to announce that, by the way. Um, uh, But fasting from food or technology, it helps bring about a depth to your attention. Fasting brings a depth to your focus as well as to a frequency, as far as like multiple times, often. Uh, Frequency of of your attention to the Lord. Frequency meaning as often as you would think about your technology, your phone, or as often as you feel that hunger pain come on, and you're like, why can't I eat? Why, where's my, oh yeah. I'm supposed to be tuning my heart towards the Lord. I'm supposed to be thinking on the things of God instead, like Philippians 4, 8, to use Miss Aaron, it's in Philippians. Uh, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, while you're fasting, think about these things. This gets at the heart of fasting. Now, I've fasted from food personally for like from one day all the way to 40 days, like a complete fast. And each time I learn something new, I learn something different. And every time my faith muscle is strengthened, my holiness muscle strengthened. And each time I feel a greater longing for a closeness with the Lord. And each time there's a growing frustration at the distance that I feel at times from heaven and from his presence and from being with him in complete presence. And each time of fasting, I see clearly just for a moment just how temporary this life is and how real and greater heaven is. So I heavily encourage you to fast and fast often because remember Jesus, when he taught about fasting, he didn't say if you fast. He always said when you fast. So every Christian should be fasting. This should be part of our, our life. My great-grandfather, uh, Pastor Woodrow Wilson Rose, fasted every Tuesday of his adult life for decades. And I have pastor friends who fast every Friday of their lives. They do this in part to sort of maintain like a 2020 vision on the cross, like just to kind of 
have that focus, that intentional time, as well as to keep an ear for the voice of the Lord to the point where you understand his tone, where you just begin to walk in such unity with the spirit. But often fasting helps address that constant drifting towards distractions. And so that fasting is like a, an anchoring point to be grounded once more from distractions. Fasting is saying no to something that's completely fine otherwise for the sake of discipline and our holiness. Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? That's the question. And now fasting here in this context in Mark is uh, abstaining from food for religious purposes. And they seem a little bit frustrated maybe, but definitely confused as to why they were fasting, but Jesus and his boys are feasting. It's like, why, if we're having to say no, why are y'all saying yes? Like, why aren't we the same here? And Jesus said to them in verse 19, can the wedding guest fast? Or Matthew records this same story and instead of fast, he says mourn, right? Can the wedding guest mourn? Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The wedding guest being the disciples. Can the disciples mourn and fast while I, the bridegroom, am with them? As long as the bridegroom is with them, they, they cannot fast. Now, the days will come when the bridegroom, Jesus, is taken away from them. Death, resurrection, ascension. Then they will mourn and fast and wait and long for that day. Wait, whoa, whoa, wedding. We're asking you about fasting and you're taking us to a wedding? Like, what? Talk about the hungry and eating. Why are you talking about wedding? Like, what's going on? Well, here's, here's what the people would have heard when Jesus said bridegroom. Immediately, these scholars, scribes, Pharisees, and all those who knew the Torah, they, they would understand in the Old Testament when Jesus referred to bridegroom, they instantly knew that Jesus was referring to places like Isaiah 54. For your maker is your husband. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. For the Lord has called you like a wife. They would instantly think of Isaiah 62. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God shall rejoice over you. They would think of the prophet Hosea in 2.16. You will call me my husband. You see, Jesus is referring to the Old Testament teaching of God, Yahweh, being the bridegroom and Israel, his chosen people, being the bride. And by the way, this is where marriage, as we know it, gets its magnificence and glory and significance from. All marriages are reflections and shadows of this greater marriage, the covenant-keeping love of God for his people, his church, his bride. Well, in speaking this way, Jesus was declaring himself to be the Messiah and God, the son of the living God, the one who Israel had been waiting for, the one whom all, all will worship one day forever in eternity. He's the God man, the bridegroom. He's claiming to be God, the creator of all things, the one present throughout all of history. And the bride represents the church all those who by faith trust in the finished saving work of Jesus Christ to forgive them, pardon them, justify them, redeem them, sanctify them, seal them, and ultimately deliver them into the presence of his father forever. But first, Jesus has to go to the cross and die. 
That's what he's referring to in 20 when he's taken from them. Now, if you look carefully, you'll see they ask, why don't they fast? And Jesus says, why should they fast? Why, why should they mourn? Why should they mourn right now? You see, fasting at the time had primarily been associated with grieving. You fasted when someone died. You fasted during a, a national catastrophe and disaster. But there's so much more to this than fa- to, to fasting than this. But this is what the Jews had reduced it to at this time. They associated fasting with mourning. And that's why Jesus uses that term in Matthew of mourn instead of fast. Here's the point that Jesus is making. The groom is here. Therefore, the bride must rejoice and not mourn and not fast. I mean, weddings themselves are typically places of celebration and happiness and not mourning. And the people of God who've been waiting for the Messiah, they need to celebrate that he's now here present in the flesh. But when he is taken away, when he is crucified, then the disciples will fast, but not right now. Again, when the bridal party's present, there's celebration and feasting. But when the groom is gone and the bride waits and waits longingly, now that is an appropriate time to fast. And he continues the same thought. It took me a bit this week to try to figure out what's going on here. But he continues the same thought into these two analogies in, starting in verse 21. No one sews a piece of new cloth, unshrunk cloth, on an old garment that's already been shrunk, right? If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts unfermented new wine into old wineskins, like leather pouches used to store wine for up to a year, right? If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So before new cloth is sewn on the old clothing, it's got to be treated or, or pre-shrunk or washed. Otherwise, when the old cloth is washed with the new patch, the patch will tear the garment even further. Old wineskins are already been stretched to capacity by previous fermentation process and wine storage. And so if new wine is placed into these skins or containers, the gases are going to cause them to explode. They've, they've, like an old rubber band, they've, they've lost their elasticity and it would just simply break under the pressure. Now, these would be absurd thoughts. No one would do these sorts of things. Like Jesus is using almost hyperbolic language because no one in this day knew that you just don't use n- new patch on old cloth. And you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Like, that's foolish. That's ridiculous. Jesus knew what they would be thinking. He knew that they would find this absurd. So what's Jesus getting at? Here's what I believe is going on. Jesus is using fasting and their particular understanding of what fasting is. He's using that as a way of addressing their entire pursuit of justification. Their entire pursuit of obeying the law. Their entire pursuit of following ceremonial laws and customs that they have created. He's getting at the heart of their religion, which is where they found their identity, their worth, and their justification. And so he uses this opportunity to deal with their religious, law-keeping, moralistic view of feasting and other things. And he's leveraging this as an opportunity to open it up, to point to the way that they've relied on their religious performance to feel superior and sufficient, to feel justified, to feel righteous, to feel good enough, to feel at peace with God. 
So he's changing the subject, or better, he's, he's referring to a greater subject altogether. It's not fasting. It's their whole way of thinking. It's how they view what makes them righteous. They're missing their understanding. They're, 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 they're not understanding where justification comes from and what it takes to be declared righteous by God. They're missing it here. Justification is a forensic act of God where we are once and for all declared righteous. And just as foolish as it is to use unshrunk cloth for patching or old wineskins for fermenting, so it is foolish to continue down the moralistic path of self-righteous, self-justification, of thinking that you can make yourself clean enough by working hard enough and fasting more often and fill in the blank, wherever it is you go for your justification, where you feel righteous and good enough. That is foolish to think that you can do that on your own. It's just as foolish as thinking that fasting can make it happen, just as foolish to think that you can put new wine in old wineskins. It's foolish. Not only is this foolish, but it's our default setting. In Genesis, using Aaron's, Genesis' uh, favorite book here in the Old Testament, you should just be up here. Let's just do this, all right? Not only is this foolish, but it's our default setting. If you remember back in Genesis, Adam and Eve, when they sin, what does Adam do? He runs and covers himself with what? A fig leaf. He's trying to take care of himself. I feel sin and shame. What do I do? I'm going to take care of it myself. Instead of running to God, they run from God. Instead of running to him, they try to cover and hide from him. This is our default setting. We do this all the time, trying to find our righteousness, pursue our justification away from going to God through Jesus Christ. Unshrunk cloth is insufficient. Old wineskins, insufficient. The old time religion of the sacrificial system is now insufficient as the Messiah has come. And so the patch and the new wine are images of a powerful, vibrant new relationship with God that bursts out of the dried up confines of mere formal religion. And the formal regulations and rules and laws and requirements of old religion, of the sacrificial system, these have been successfully completed and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. This is part of why Jesus is trying to lift their eyes from mere fasting to something greater, to his finished work for their justification. That it's not through fasting, it's not through anything else except for Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his work on their behalf. Lift your eyes from other forms of justification, self-justification. Lift your eyes from where it is that you're finding righteousness to somewhere where it can actually be found in Christ. Right? This is all through Galatians. Galatians chapter, or I'm sorry, Hebrews, and then we're going to spend some time in Galatians. Hebrews 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. This is the old way, right? Which can never take away sins. But when Christ the Messiah, Jesus Christ, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. His task was completed, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, at God's appropriate timing, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were 
under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Galatians chapter three and verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law, and I would add for their justification, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Cursed are all those who do not do these things perfectly. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Christ redeemed us from that curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law like fasting because by works of the law no one will be justified now there's no innate defect in the law itself according to Romans chapter 7 and verse 12 the law is holy and righteous and good so the problem's not with the law the law are God's holy requirements, which we sinners cannot meet. We cannot obey. We cannot fulfill. So the problem isn't the law. The problem's with us. Under the requirements of the law, each one of us stands eternally and forever condemned. The law in its essence is the Ten Commandments, but many, many more commandments and, and regulations. Remember the commandments were given to Moses after they left Egypt he called him up on this mountain. And then one of my favorite theological works, this is a masterpiece in my opinion, the Jesus story Bible. Um, I dare you to read a story without crying. Um, it's phenomenal. So I'll read just a couple pages out of this moment when God called Moses up to the hill. God called Moses up the mountain. The great mountain shook. The th a thick cloud fell. Thunder roared. Lightning crackled. And God gave Moses 10 rules called commandments. I want you to love me more than anything else in all the world and know that I love you too, God told them. That's the most important thing of all, God said. God gave them other rules, like don't make yourself pretend gods, don't kill people, don't steal, don't lie. The rules showed God's people how to live and how to be close to him and how to be happy. They showed how life worked best. God promises to always look after you, Moses said. Will you love him and keep all these rules? We can do it, yes, we promise. But they were wrong. They couldn't do it. No matter how hard they tried, they could never keep God's rules all the time. God knew they couldn't. And he wanted them to know it too. Which is the purpose of the law, by the way. Only one person, capital P, could keep all the rules. And many years later, God would send him to stand in their place and be perfect for them because the rules couldn't save them. Only God could save them. No one but Jesus can keep and obey the law so perfectly that it's once and for all good enough. But the good, great news of the gospel is that Jesus did, in fact, keep the law entirely and perfectly, and he did so as our representative in our place for us. 
Jesus didn't come to make the law better. He came to fulfill it and introduce a whole new ball game called grace. Grace instead of law. Jesus has fulfilled, not destroyed the law. The law is constant and always. It is still there today. But Jesus is the one who has fulfilled that, which makes us able to be in relationship with God because his fulfillment of the law is as us. Romans 8 chapter 1 says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God himself has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's the cross. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, Jesus came to bring about a whole new and different way to worship God. And it's not based on our law keeping like fasting and frequency of fasting, but it's made possible by the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of God and his spirit coming in us, within us, making us new, causing us to live, making us alive. You see, Jesus Christ has met the righteous requirement of the law, fulfilling it for us. That and that only results in our justification. Justification is the acquittal of the guilty person before God's judgment seat. Justification is the divine verdict of acquittal pronounced over the believing sinner, where God declares the sinner to be not guilty as he looks at his son declaring him guilty because he took their place and his sin upon himself and he lived a perfect life according to God's law, suffering for our sins. The result is our justification, meaning just as if I've never sinned and just as if I've always obeyed. It's perfect and it's beautiful, and it's holistic, and we can't mess it up because it was his doing, and he said it's finished, and it's taken care of. You see, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, of what he has accomplished in the middle of human history, not only can Christians know in the present that there's no condemnation from God upon us, but we can also look at the cross and also see our final judgment at the end of history already carried out on Jesus Christ in our place. So there's nothing to fear, nothing to dread. He's taking care of all of it. And by faith in this, Christians are justified through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus kept the law that we could not fulfill, that no one else could obey. He was faithful and obedient and perfect to the Father. And he was beaten and he was crucified and he was raised to redeem people from the curse of the law. He was born under the law and he kept it perfect and always to redeem us who can never keep it at all. Growing up, I was dedicated to the law. You know, some people rebel against the law and some people look at the law of God and try to fulfill it themselves. I was the cat who thought, man, I can do that. I was raised in a pastor's home and I felt like I could do everything perfectly. I did not understand grace. I understood law. I understood punishment. I understood guilt. I understood shame. I understood condemnation. I got this. This was my lingo, my language. At 18 years old, I had yet to kiss anybody, date anybody, or curse. And I made sure nobody around me ever cursed in my presence. I reprimanded them in a heartbeat. I didn't care who you were. You were not to cuss around me. These ears are pure. You do not 
curse around me. This is my, this is my heart. I never watched an R-rated movie at age 18, but I would go to the movies and hand out tracks. Right? It's like, enjoy the show, and you open it, and, and hell. So, thanks. I remember in, in, um, in middle school, during the last of the Mohicans showing, which I had friends in that movie because it was filmed in my hometown. I sat in the library because I did not want these eyes to watch an already movie. Age 18, never smoked, drank, never held an open beer can. I would pick up litter around the church property. If it was a beer can, I wouldn't touch it. It's like that litter's got to decompose in 10,000 years because I'm not touching it. I'm not going to file these hands with that. I never saw drugs, never did drugs, never told a dirty joke, never participated in laughter at a dirty joke. I never listened to secular music outside of Elvis, Beach Boys, and Sinatra, which I rented from the library, right? Only Southern gospel and and very slow Southern gospel. At a Point of Grace concert in 1996 at the Asheville Civic Center in the mountains of North Carolina, I sat in silent protest because of how wicked and vile point of grace was. I never owned any clothing that had any branding whatsoever of anything that wasn't holy, right? I had Lord's gym shirt where Jesus is like lifting the cross. We talked about that, Tyler. I had that one. I had almost every Christian shirt you can imagine. And I always made sure that whenever I was praying at a ball game or something, that everybody took their hat off and I would not start praying until they did. And it got awkward. All this is what I pointed to as my justification. We all have something that we point to that says I'm good enough because of this. I was perfect compared to my friends, but I was dead in my sin. I was dead in my self-righteousness. I was blinded to my religious performance. I was ignorant of my need. I felt good enough. I was alive in my religion, but that's like bragging about having the highest score of everybody who's failed. I felt superior around those who weren't as good as me. And I felt so stupid if I ever messed up. I felt so rejected if someone did something better than me. If my righteous rule was one-upped by someone's more radical rule, I had to change my rule to become more radical than their more radical rule. But I didn't know what I was doing. It never occurred to me. Friend, as you point for your self-righteousness, are you aware of what you're doing? You see, I had subconsciously formed and sort of created my own religion where I was the best. I was worthy of worship. I loved it when people would talk about how perfect I was. Even though I was looking at pornography, even though I was cursing and damning people in my heart with such deep hatred, My mind, heart, and soul judge people to their core. There's no way he loved them as much as he loved me. There's no way they love God, not with that lifestyle. I was subtly gossiping about others all the time in the form of like prayer requests, right? I had songs about people. Like I would sing songs and they're terrible, but I would sing songs about people dying and burning in hell. There's songs in weird satanic Christian cultures that celebrate and belittle divine eternal judgment. My heart was full of hate and resentment. I was miserable. I knew all the Christian words. I never lost a Bible drill. 
You see, I had something deep within me, far deeper than the appearance. Because if you looked at me, you would think, man, what a great guy. On the inside, I was dead. I hated God. I hated other people. And I loved myself and I looked out for me. But this is the problem with the law. We try to keep it. We try to find a way of finding righteousness, but we can never truly fulfill the law. It just makes us angry. When you try to fulfill the law without living in freedom from the law by Jesus Christ, meeting the requirements of the law, it only makes you bitter, angry, and sour. We can't come close to having the right heart, even if we're trying to do the right things. But then enters Jesus. And Jesus comes as God in the flesh and he enters into human history and he announces that he's the Messiah, that he's the one that we've been looking for, that his kingdom has come, that he's the son of God, that he's the promised savior. And he's come to fulfill the requirement of obeying the law perfectly. Friend, do you see the reason for celebration? Like he's come to make a new way where we can understand his spirit and see his love and receive his love and experience his love. And it comes to us like new wine. Therefore, we have to have new hearts. We've got to have new wineskins here to receive the new wine, the old wineskins of religion and rebellion and performance and self-righteousness. Those won't work. We've got to be made alive. We've got to be made new. And this is only and entirely the power of God Almighty at work within us. Friend, Jesus has come to be the once and for all sacrifice to restore us, all who believe, back into relationship with God once and for all. And it's not through your righteousness. It's not through your performance. It's through the righteousness of Christ and his performance as us. And his saving gospel work produces and introduces grace rather than just more advice on how to work harder at obeying God's law. And now because of the grace that God's provided through Jesus, the previous religious structures of required fasting and sacrificial system and so forth, they're insufficient and inadequate because of what Jesus has fulfilled in them. And so now rather than judgment, we get love as God is love. And God judged Jesus in our place. And so rather than receiving silence from God, which is what Jesus endured for us on the cross, we get to hear him, we get dialogue through prayer. And now, rather than being required to keep a list, we freely live because Jesus kept that list for us. But how does Jesus fulfilling the law and the righteous requirement make a difference today? How does this bridegroom coming to us change things for us today? I'll close with this. I'm gonna give it to you as a, as a way it was described to me by my friend, author Ray Ortland. This is, he's entitled this, Mr. Law, Mr. Grace. We were married to Mr. Law. It was horrible. It was miserable. He was a good man in his way, but he did not understand our weaknesses and our limitations. He came home every evening and asked, so how was your day? Did you do what I told you to do? Did you waste any time? Did you make the kids behave? Did you do all that I told you to do? Did you get all the stuff at the store that I wrote down? All of it? So many demands so many expectations. And as hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. We forgot things that were important to him. We couldn't help it. The children misbehaved always bouncing off the walls. And we failed in other ways as well, hoping that he would never find out. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed to our failings. And his remedy was always the same. Do better tomorrow. Get it together. I've made it clear. What more do you want from me? 
do it. We couldn't. We tried relentlessly, but we couldn't. But Mr. Law died. Thank the Lord. And we remarried this time to Mr. Grace. And our new husband comes home every day. And the house is a mess. The kids are terrible. Dinner is burning on the stove. The car windows are down in the pouring rain. And we've had men, other men, in the house during the day. Yet, he enters. He looks us deep in the eyes. He sweeps us into his arms and he says, I love you. I love you. I love you. I chose you. You are mine. You're mine. Mine forever. I'm never going to stop loving you. You can't mess up this love either. You're so, so deep in my heart that I can never let you go. You know, I die for you. I'm never leaving you ever. And our hearts melt. We don't understand such love. We expect him to judge us, but he treats us so well. Being married to Mr. Law never changed us. But being married to Mr. Grace is finally changing us deep within. And it's starting to show. Friend, Mr. Grace is the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And he did, in fact, die for us, knowing that we could never be good enough. He came to be good enough for us. And this is what we're going to remember here in communion. Now our lives are marked by grace because of our restored relationship with God provided by Jesus through his redemptive work. May we believe this and be saved by this and live lives of freedom from from our old religious performance. Living now under the influence of his spirit every day. Living in grace. Learning what grace is and experiencing new and very very necessary mercies every day. So I ask that you think on these things that you think deeply on these because you know as you think through these things, that's how one becomes a Christian. And Christian, as you dwell deeply on these things, often that's how you find happiness in this life. You see, in order to understand the things of God, we've got to have his spirit present in us, with us, revealing these sorts of things to us. Or else, like old wineskins, we'll not be able to process or understand these things. These things come by faith. And our faith comes from the word of God. So think on the word of God. Think on Jesus Christ. Or as Psalm 107, 43 puts it, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's do this corporately together through communion. Christian, here's where we acknowledge the saving work of Jesus Christ. You're going to grab bread and you're going to grab juice. And you're going to remember this is your justification. This is it. It's what Christ has accomplished for us. This is what we point to. How do I know that I'm good enough? You point to the elements of communion and what they represent. You point to Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And you think deeply of what he's accomplished for you as we share this time. You're going to take bread and dip into the juice or the wine. The body, the, br- the, bl- the bread symbolic of the body of Christ and his perfect life. The blood, his sacrificial death as our substitute in our place. This resulting in our justification, resulting in our restoration back to God. How is it yours? You believe these things to be true. You ask God for faith. You ask Jesus to give you faith to believe. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. We proclaim the mystery of faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of remembering, on this time of celebrating our justification through Christ alone, be on this time of communion, and may his Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit remain with us always. Amen. Christian, when you're ready, please come and take, remembering the finished work on our behalf. We'll have servers on either side and a self-serve station in the back. You can come when you're ready. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.